Last October, President Biden announced that the U.S. would be exploring the development of an Indo-Pacific economic framework. The announcement was made during a virtual East Asia summit. That framework, now known as IPATH, was officially launched last month. Over the intervening seven months, bits of information and broad concepts about IPATH trickled out of the administration here and there. We didn't know in detail what IPATH would entail, but we did know three things. First, the administration isn't interested in joining the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, or CPTPP for short. CPTPP is a regional trade agreement between Pacific Rim countries, the U.S. and China excluded. The United States under President Obama actually led CPTPP negotiations, but it was never ratified by Congress, and President Trump put the final nail in the coffin during his first week in office when he officially pulled the United States out of the agreement. Second, the framework wouldn't be a traditional trade agreement, with market access commitments and strict barriers to entry. Rather, it would be a quote, administrative arrangement, and one that doesn't prioritize the interests of big business. Importantly, it also wouldn't require congressional approval. Third, the framework isn't meant to be the administration's China strategy, but it will undeniably shape the environment around China, and this is intentional, something Secretary of State Antony Blinken confirmed in a major speech on China policy just last month. So while we've known for months what the framework won't be, we still don't know in detail what the framework will be. So naturally, we're phoning our friend Anna Ashton, Senior Fellow for Asia-Pacific Trade, Investment, and Innovation at the Asia Society Policy Institute. From the U.S.-China Business Council in Washington, D.C., I'm Erin Slauson, and this is the China Business Review. So Anna, we've had you on the CBR podcast before, but it's your first time joining in your new capacity. So welcome back. Thanks, Erin. Thanks for having me. Let's start off with the basics. What do we know about what IPEF will be? Well, we know that there are 13 members. We know that that includes seven of the 10 ASEAN nations. It also includes India, which is... Uh, unique and interesting because India is traditionally averse to joining trade agreements. It tends to uh, pursue a non-aligned strategy on trade as well as other issues, and it's not part of CPTPP or RCEP. Uh, we know that it has four pillars. There's the fair and resilient trade pillar, which we understand will focus largely on digital trade issues. Uh, there's the supply chain resiliency pillar, which is about uh, diversifying and securing supply chains for critical, critical goods. There's the clean energy decarbonization and infrastructure pillar, and there is this taxation anti-corruption pillar. Uh, we know that it is an opt-in type of agreement. There's very little here that's going to be uh, binding and and members will be able to pick and choose what they want to sign on to. But we don't know exactly how that's going to work out with the trade pillar, which is said to be uh, not, not negotiable. If you opt into the trade pillar, you may have to opt into all of the trade pillar. Uh, and we know, as you said, that it's not going to include market access, tariff rollbacks, or the traditional pieces of what we could consider to be a trade agreement, a free trade agreement. You have a background in international trade law, but for those of us who don't, what are the benefits of an administrative arrangement versus a traditional multilateral trade agreement? And what are some of the downsides? Well, so an administrative arrangement, 
essentially is just code for this isn't going to require approval from Congress. Um, there are benefits of not needing approval from Congress right now, specifically because we don't have trade promotion authority in place. It expired last year and uh, it is infeasible for any administration to try to negotiate a trade agreement without trade promotion authority in place because TPA basically lays out what Congress will and won't accept in a trade agreement and gives the executive branch the ability to go forward and negotiate a full agreement without having to worry that when that agreement goes to Congress for approval, it will get picked apart. So TPA basically allows, uh, allows trade negotiations to be done and then uh, voted on by Congress with an up or down vote. Since we don't have that, that's one of the reasons presumably that the Biden administration isn't pursuing traditional aspects of a trade agreement here. The Trump administration also used an administrative arrangement to negotiate the phase one deals. So there's recent precedent for this. And some argue that uh, this, is, this is more of the executive branch pursuing a more independent approach to economic engagement as part of foreign policy. The downsides, it's very unclear to uh, many in the trade profession exactly what the incentives are for building closer economic ties if we're not offering greater market access or negotiating tariff rollbacks or tariff reductions as part of this arrangement. The Asia-Pacific region certainly has no shortage of different trade agreements. Many of the countries are part of RCEP. Of course, we have CPTPP, there's DEPA, or the Digital Economic Partnership Agreement, and now IPEF. So how does the Biden administration go about carving out a specific and unique niche for IPEF that makes it different from the myriad of other trade agreements in the region? Well, so one thing that is unique about IPEF is that uh, it is it's covering a number of newer emerging issues in trade, right? Uh, digital, supply chains, climate, labor. It's trying to, uh, it's, it's positioned to move the ball forward on a lot of these issues, which uh, other U.S. agreements have done. CPTPP was certainly uh, at the cutting edge of all of those issues to the extent that it dealt with them, but it has been negotiated for quite some time, right? And uh, definitely is in need of updates. USMCA updated some of those things uh, pretty successfully, and there is one of the challenges for the United States in getting back to CPTPP, arguably, is that USMCA has raised the bar for things like labor and environment, and um, it's not clear that all of the constituencies domestically in the United States that would need to be on board with rejoining CPTPP would be on board unless CPTPP were updated to similarly raise the bar on those issues. So uh, it is, it's trying to address newer emerging issues in trade and, and issues in trade that the United States has prioritized in recent agreements. It also could ultimately end up being something of a path back to CPTPP for the United States to the extent that it doesn't address things like uh, market access and tariffs, but does address things like labor and the environment in new ways. 
uh, it could be compatible with CPTPP and maybe ultimately be something that CPTPP members could consider signing on to as like a plus up uh, if the United States were to return to CPTPP. So from an optimistic perspective, this could pave the way for a return to CPTPP. Um, it also embodies the Biden administration's sort of unorthodox, unique approach to trade policy, which we are all still waiting to better understand. Um, we know that Catherine Tai and March, in the context of uh, US-UK trade negotiations, called um, market access and, and tariff, uh, tariff reduction and things like that uh, 20th century trade tools. She basically said free trade agreements are 20th century trade tools. And uh, that while every tool is important, the Biden administration wants to focus on 21st century issues and wants to sort of center trade around 21st century issues like labor and climate um, and less around things like greater market access for big business. Um, it remains to be seen exactly how effective that's going to be. Our countries, especially developing economies that are seeking greater trade and greater economic benefit from their relationships with the United States, going to be enticed by an agreement that requires them to raise their standards and invest in an enforcement of higher standards, but doesn't give them market access, for, for instance, in return. Is there something else that we're planning to give, such as uh, greater, greater investment in these countries' development and their infrastructure? And to the extent that that's something we're planning to give, is it remotely comparable to what they can get along with market access from a partner like China? Uh, I think we just don't know the answer to that yet. But in the end, uh, I think that the Biden administration's desire to center economic engagement and economic statecraft around uh, what it terms 21st century issues like labor and climate change uh, and standards is fundamentally uh, a reflection of President Biden's view that, that the US-China dynamic is one of competing values. And it's, it's a reflection of the awareness that at the end of the day, China has become economically powerful enough that whichever of us is most successful in negotiating new trade agreements, that country is going to be defining the standards for trade and economic engagement globally uh, in the years to come, in the decades to come. And for the Biden administration, and I think for, for plenty of policymakers on both sides of the aisle, it is increasingly important, paramount even, that the, that the rules of the road be ones that reflect our, our values as a democracy. Many in the business community and in academia were hopeful that the U.S. would rejoin CPTPP under the Biden administration, perhaps in vain. You mentioned that maybe IPEF is kind of like a way to get the United States to a place where it, it could join CPTPP or almost like um, a stopgap, like temporary solution. But do you think this is realistic? And do you think CPTPP might actually be permanently off the table, at least in the minds of the Biden administration? Yeah, you know, I think, um, I, I don't think that CPTPP is permanently off the table. We've seen many letters from members of 
both parties in Congress urging the administration to review the decision to withdraw from CPTPP and to potentially reconsider uh, our approach there and our approach to those nations. There's also the fact that China has applied to join CPTPP and certainly to the extent that we have recognized that the Biden administration has recognized or that members of Congress have recognized that we uh, need strong trade and supply chain relationships with partners that are Pacific nations in order to um, better secure our, our interests and balance China's influence in the region. Um, we probably don't want to see a CPTPP that includes China as a member and doesn't include the United States. So no, I don't think it's off the table, but right now it doesn't feel like the uh, necessary pieces are in place domestically for us to be able to pursue rejoining CPTPP. Uh, that includes both the need for trade promotion authority to be negotiated and passed by Congress and the will for, for both Republicans and Democrats to come to the table and support joining a trade agreement when labor interests have become so dominant in both parties' attempts to capture the majority of votes in any given election. From the get-go, China was on the defensive when it came to even just the idea of some sort of U.S.-led trade architecture in the region. The Global Times quoted Chinese experts as calling IPEF an economic NATO, which I think is really charged language considering that China has continued to blame NATO for provoking Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But China is a major trading partner of several of the countries that have signed on to IPEF so far. So that's Australia, Brunei, India, Indonesia, Japan, South Korea, Malaysia, New Zealand, the Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, and Vietnam. So all things considered, is this turnout a success? Did it come as a surprise? So I think, I don't think that it came as a huge surprise that we got this many nations to sign on. And that's partly because while China is a critical trade partner for virtually all of these countries, um, so is the United States. And uh, it's in the best interest of most of these countries to shore up and secure their trade relationships with both China and the United States. So although many of these countries are also members of the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is China's, uh, basically China's answer to CPTPP, uh, they also saw value in joining a United States-led arrangement. I think it's too early to tell what kind of success this is going to yield. You can say that uh, it's significant that this many nations signed on because where RCEP represents 30% of global GDP, uh, IPEF, according to the White House, represents 40% of global GDP. So this is certainly significant in terms of, of potential and size. But RCEP has provisions that really um, facilitate trade. And uh, IPEF doesn't have those provisions and we know it's not really going to. So it's hard to, it's hard to know right now exactly what it's going to deliver in terms of benefits for partners and how much it is going to encourage greater trade and greater economic integration between these countries and the United States versus uh, the arrangements that are encouraging trade between these countries and China. 
I also want to ask about timing. Presidential terms in the United States only last four years, and this can be a double-edged sword. Many have criticized the Biden administration for dragging its feet on China trade policy, just China policy in general, but I'm curious if you think the Biden administration has enough time to accomplish what it wants to accomplish with IPEF in the time that it has left in this term. The Biden administration has set out an ambitious time frame for negotiating these the, the details of these pillars, 12 to 18 months. Uh, so theoretically, yes, they have time, but that is, that is extremely ambitious in terms of, if you compare it with how long it took to negotiate other trade agreements. I mean, USMCA got done relatively quickly, but USMCA was an update on an existing agreement between our two closest trading partners and border nations. Uh, this is a lot more players with a lot more potentially conflicting interests in a very different region of the world. Uh, so, you know, can it be done in 12 to 18 months? Not sure. I think the more important question really though is even if it gets done in 12 to 18 months, what happens if the next administration has a different view of how to engage with the world. We had a, a Trump presidency uh, that was focused on an America first ethos, which was much more sort of isolationist and uh, unilateral in its approach to issues that we face in our relationships with other countries. That maybe took a bit of a a turn towards the end of the Trump administration, at least with regard to China. We did see the Trump administration more aggressively courting cooperation with partners in Europe and elsewhere to tackle what it perceived to be common threats emanating from China. Uh, but we really don't know what a Trump-like candidate might, might deliver in terms of foreign policy and whether or not this agreement would be prioritized by that person if they came into office. Uh, and I think that our partners, both in the Indo-Pacific and around the world, are also wondering about that. And that could be one of the reasons why 12 to 18 months is an ambitious time frame for negotiation. The China Business Review podcast is a production of the U.S.-China Business Council. You can learn more about what we do at uschina.org. Our music is by Tours. If you liked the episode, be sure to leave us a rating and review so that other people can find us, and we will be back soon.